right, so question for you. Have you ever wanted a do-over in, in life in a moment? Some of you are students. It's like exam month, apparently. And how many of you may have taken a test and the difference between the A or the B or the B or the C was one question. It was multiple choice and you were debating. You're like, I don't know, it's one of these two. And you just pick one and you find out later you picked the wrong one. And you're like, I just needed to pick the other one. And now I have to repeat a grade or whatever it is, right? They don't do that. I don't think anymore. Anyway, it could be that. It could be in sports. You're like, all right, I had to go this. I had to go left or right. I went right and then I got like tackled or I got blocked or whatever. If I just went left, we would have won the championship. You know, those kinds of stories. Or in a relationship, you're like, I just, I blurted something out and I wish I could take it all back in, but I can't. It just, it's out there, you know. I remember a couple years ago, Lynn and I, we were walking in Lynchburg on this trail, and we were walking on this, it, it was interesting, because we are walking along this trail just doing our thing, we're like, yeah, we, we used to do this trail in college or grad school or something, and all of a sudden, we came across this spot, and we're both, we're like, we've been here before. Wait a second. This, I was like, this is the spot I told you that I love you. Like, that's important. And then uh, I was like, wait, do you remember what you said? And her answer was thanks uh, to that. And so even last night I asked her, I was like, hey, remember this? Like, I'm a, I'm a, can I talk about that story? And she said, sure. I was like, do you regret saying thanks? And she said, no. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I, I just, I'm getting no love. <laughs> That's, you know, whether it's even those scenarios or, or others, uh, more, more seriously, uh, there are always moments in which we either do something that we regret, we wish we could take back the last 24 hours, we wish we could go back and just change it, uh, whether, whether we didn't realize the extent of those consequences or we have matured or whatever it may be. There are different reasons which we, we wish we could go back. I know for my own life there are some things that are, uh, some things are petty, uh, but some things are incredibly uh, disastrous in the effects of one way or the other, and I wish I could go back, wish I could sit down with myself and say, from you know, big, older Adam, do not do this. What you're about to do is going to be a great mistake, and it will be, uh, you, you, can't, you can't change when that happens. What do we do here when, we, when we've made these kinds of mistakes, when we carry this kind of shame? You know, how do you pick yourself up? Do you just excuse it by saying, well, you know, I was young, uh, do you dismiss it by saying that's just like water cooler talk? You know, do you overlook it by blaming someone else uh, because they provoked you? Or is it possible with these moments of regret or shame that maybe you still have or you've kind of got over, but maybe there's still that wound that's lingering in one way or another, is it possible that that season of shame or that lifestyle of disgrace, that you can take it and put it squarely at the cross with honest confession, and then let Jesus Christ's blood wash us clean. I believe it is, and I believe that's the best and the only option to experiencing full healing before our maker and also with one another. And in today's story, we learn of Peter, who has been carrying awful regret with him, and how Jesus talks with him and encourages him and re rejuvenates his heart and his joy to serve the Lord, worship him, and be a great leader in the church. So if you want, you can turn to John 21. We're gonna read this story. I'll, I'll read the whole story, and then we're gonna work through it as a congregation. So John 21, starting in verse 15, it starts off this way. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Well, Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, well, tend my sheep. And Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not wanna go. Now this was said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God, which we know from church history was crucifixion. In fact, it was upside down. The verse continues, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, this would be John, the Apostle John. Uh, Jesus loved uh, following them, right? So they're walking. That's, that's what we can conclude here. And the one who had, this is, the one that Jesus loved is the one who had leaned back against him during the supper, the last supper, and said, Lord, who is it that's gonna betray you? So verse 21 says, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. All right, I'm gonna conclude there with the story. In this story, we learn the role of restoration in the purposes of God. But there are also some pretty interesting or unexpected spiritual principles that we're gonna look at as well. And so I wanna start with those unexpected spiritual lessons, and then we will look at the restoration uh, concept that is taught and is kind of the, the meat of this passage. So verse 15, it starts off with these words, when they had finished breakfast. And right out of the gate, I see a spiritual lesson there. Like before you even get to the words, that they, the dialogue that they have. And that is this concept of spending time with Jesus before asking of Jesus. So this is when they had finished breakfast. If you recall from last week, they're eating, they're eating a meal, right? Jesus puts his chef hat on, makes them a little meal, they enjoy it, they spend time together, and there's a lot of good things we learn from that. Well, before Peter could experience this restoration and forgiveness from Jesus, he ate with Jesus. And friends, we often want to encounter God and hear from God, receive strength from God, get wisdom from God, but we don't even want to sit with him. We don't want to, quote unquote, eat with Jesus, enjoying a spiritual meal that he has prepared. We just wanna jump right into business with him, right? We wake up and we have our prayer needs on our heart or asking God for whatever we might need while we're driving in the car on the way to, it could be school or work or some obligation, and you're just going through it. Uh, maybe you're even confessing sin, whatever it might be, but you don't even take any time to wake up and say, good morning. And I'm not trying to be cheesy about this or like, you know, the whole like, I don't know, dad kind of, corny stuff. It's really true for us to be able to talk and just sit and open our morning with our Heavenly Father, or you could say with Jesus, and obviously, you know, different, different persons as a Godhead, but just waking up and saying, God, good morning, you know, Lord, good morning. When we skip those daily moments with God, we skip over an important step in our spiritual formation. And so I wanna urge you to begin the morning with God, treating it like your spiritual breakfast. In fact, you might even want to literally spend time with God while you're eating breakfast, like while you're eating real, you know, real food. Have spiritual food there too. And perhaps if, if this is not a practice of yours on a regular basis, 
I encourage you to start with one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Tomorrow, start with one of them. Um, you could even move right into the middle of it, right, if you want to, and read one of the stories about Jesus and his interactions with others or his teachings or his miracles. Read through it while you're eating food and just allow yourself to use God's word to have a morning time with Jesus. Before you get into intercession for yourself or for others, before you get into all the obligations of the day, let us, if, if this is still not even a habit, set your alarm, and if you are like me, you can use your phone where you can change the name of it. Make the alarm even say, because you will forget, because you already have a routine. Just say like breakfast with Jesus if you want, and that will help you remember like, yeah, I've, it's been 24 hours and I already forgot. So use that kind of stuff to remind yourself, and don't read the news, read the gospels when you're eating in the morning. <laughs> all right, so that's the first lesson. Uh, secondly here, a kind of unexpected lesson is the language that Jesus uses when he's talking with Peter. Did you catch some of the, some of the metaphor, the similarities, the imagery here? There's, there's feeding the sheep, tending to the lambs, right? <clears throat> Shepherding kind of imagery, this livestock imagery. Peter and John, they go back, or Jesus and, and Peter, they go back and forth here with this same kind of phrase, do you love me? Yes, well then feed or tend to my sheep. You know, Jesus could have given Peter any charge. Peter was the leader of the church, essentially, and Jesus chose two words to say over and over again, feed and tend. And a third word would be sheep of some matter. Some of the top marks of a faithful church leader are those of a shepherd. A shepherd, not a CEO or a coach or even a father. Now there are there are countless ways to describe the pastoral role within the church. There are formal titles such as pope and preacher and bishop, father, pastor, priest, vicar, elder, prophet, reverend, apostle, and evangelist. And then there's all sorts of metaphorical descriptions of what pastors do. This includes coach or architect or storyteller or captain of the ship, father, CEO, doctor, gardener, herald, even pelican from church history back in about, I don't know, mid middle ages artist, pioneer, veterinarian, all these different metaphors, even they, they have their place, especially when you need to address a certain issue. However, the term that is used in scripture throughout and specifically in this moment by Jesus is that of a shepherd. Again, he could have used any sort of language. Instead, he used this shepherding language. In the Old Testament, Yahweh used shepherding with the prophets. Jesus used it about himself as the chief shepherd, if you recall, in John chapter 10. The Holy Spirit carried along the apostles to use it in the first century and also to teach it for all subsequent generations for people who would be involved in leading in the church. So there are endless dis, um, metaphors to use, but the ones that scripture often uses is shepherding. I think we should take note of that. Now Jesus, as he's talking to them, perhaps he's reminded, or perhaps he's referencing words from Jeremiah 23. I'm gonna read this for you. This is not what I read a couple weeks ago. If you recall, I read Je Jeremiah 23 talking about the righteous branch, at least in one of the services I did. I think I started changing it between the two. If you don't know, sometimes I don't preach the same sermon, like, you know, fully between the two services. So you gotta go to both. But in this one, I talked about this other verses. If you were to back up, starting in verses one through four, Jeremiah 23, one to four, perhaps Jesus is, has this in mind as he's, describing to Peter what he should do. <clears throat> Jeremiah wrote this, 
Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds, who care for my people. I'll read it in a moment, real quick. I'm, the reason I'm, I'm just processing this, this phrase out of Acts 20 that says, uh, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. There's such a unique And, uh, and a hearty charge for me specifically as I'm reading this. Okay, so back to uh, Jeremiah in the middle of verse two. He says, you have scattered my flock. You've driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So Jesus used that shepherding language, and that's one reason we use that here as well among our elders. Uh, there's more I could say on that, but I wanna keep, keep moving here. A third principle we see in this story that's unexpected and not like the main emphasis, because again, I think the, the, the main uh, point of this whole thing for us is regarding the restoration that Jesus offers and that forgiveness and over our regret. But the main, uh, but a, a third principle just kind of on the side that we see is the danger of comparison. These are the last few verses I read and it actually continues with a few other verses that I just didn't keep going with. But if you recall in verses 21 and 22, it says, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus says, hey, if it's the will of, uh, that, you know, if it's, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. And so that idea, what's that to you? You, know, you are to follow me. This reminds us of the craftiness and the deception of the comparison trap that we might have with others. And it is toxic to your spiritual formation. Looking to the left and the right. For Peter, it's like, don't even look at John. If he wants, you know, if he's gonna live for thousands of years till Christ returns, so be it. That didn't happen, but that's, so be it. And we're reminded not to concern ourselves with someone else's life or death. We're not to look to the left and to, and to the right and to begin to ponder things that honestly our flesh can't handle the answer for. What job do they have? What kind of money do they make? When will they marry? Who will they marry? How many kids will they have? What will their kids excel at? Now obviously as parents we might think these questions, but just kind of in general when it comes to this, uh, what a, I don't know, what about this guy over here? I just was told really bad news. What about this guy over there? We must be careful when it comes to considering one's purpose 
or stewardship or God's timing in their lives or their calling. To these kinds of matters, Jesus' words apply to us. What is that to you? Friends, I've seen over and over again in my own life, but also in conversations with, with you and with others, that when we desire to know these answers, and sometimes we find out to some degree, we tend to either have uh, one or two responses. One's jealousy, because you're like, what? why them and not me? And the other could be pride. Hey, look at that bomb over there and look at me. And so jealousy and pride show us that our flesh cannot handle these kinds of answers and we are weaker than we realize and we have to remember principles like this. God has given us what we need to fulfill what he has called us to do and to be. And it's not just like preacher talk because this, this would preach to pastors all day long when you're kind of talking about other churches and stuff, but in, in families, in life, in careers, whatever it may be. If God has not given you the desires of your heart, you know, you're praying what is it, Psalm 34, seven or 37, four, kind of get a minute, and you're like, what about this? God, what's going on here? Well, if that has not happened yet, perhaps there's a few other reasons. Maybe he's still orchestrating the details in you and in others before that's to happen. Perhaps your desires need to change and he will match your desires to his will. Perhaps the timing in your life is not ready to maximize Jesus's glory in your life and in creation. All these I could go all day long whether in scripture and see examples, whether it's Moses and whether it's Joseph, uh, whether it's David and then his moment of being the king instead of just wait until Saul kind of does his thing. Um, and then even in the New Testament, over and over again in scripture and then just conversations with all of us, we can see God has time, uh, purpose for us and our tendency is to be like Peter and to look to the left or the right and say, hey, what about that person? What about that person? Here's my experience. And, and we, tend to, uh, we tend to struggle with that. And so let me encourage you, how we respond is mightily important. In those moments, do you respond with faithfulness or do you respond with pity? Do you respond with hope or do you respond with despair? I encourage you in those moments to trust the Lord and his purposes and his timing, particularly if this is a trap that is a regular part of your flesh. It just kind of has, it just has that place. And for some of us, that is just kind of a regular thing, like a daily, a daily struggle, then you got to work through that. Let's try to fulfill the exact words of Jesus to Peter there. You follow me. Just fix your eyes on Christ, follow him. Okay, so those are three like side principles to this text. And each of those are really good. I enjoy all those. Those are like little daily, little nuggets. I could have Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is like my, my devotionals with those passages alone. But let's turn our attention to the main idea of this story. And that's the role of restoration and the purposes of God. There, I don't have like a, a lengthy thing for this, but I do think this is the, the focus here. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Peter, he betrayed Jesus in the early hours before Jesus's trial and then the flogging that occurred, and then the crucifixion. In fact, Luke 22 tells it this way, uh, starting in verse 59. About an hour later, another asserted, this would be the third person who said, Peter, don't you know Jesus? So the third one asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went 
outside and he wept bitterly. You know, without question, Peter felt the most shame during the crucifixion. Of course, you have Judas, who literally betrayed Jesus for those 30 pieces of silver. <clears throat> but, or he, Judas betrayed, uh, yeah, Jesus. But then Peter, he literally, and three times said, I don't know that man. He's the best friend with Jesus. I don't know that man. And this is a relatable moment for us because how many times, at least, and maybe it's just me. Hey, maybe I'm the greatest, like, uh, silent man in the room here. But how many times you might be among friends, or not so much friends, strangers, uh, classmates, particularly new into the year, not by the end, when they're like, hey, why aren't you, you know, like they find out that you go to church and stuff. A new job you might be in, whatever it might be. And how many times you might be standing around them and somebody's like, hey, is anyone here a Christian? And for whatever reason, but you know it's not for like the best reason. And despite, uh, even if you had a, a robust quiet time that morning, I mean, you like, you like prayed the heavens down, but three hours later, you're in this scenario and then you just stick, you know, you, you, you stay silent. You kind of swivel your, swivel your head back and forth looking around like, hey, is anyone here a Christian? And it's like, you're the, like the token Christian. I never got away with that growing up. I was a pastor's kid, so everyone knew where I was and what I what I thought, not that being a pastor's kid makes you a Christian, but you know, like in a public school and all, people knew where I, what I was doing. But we can relate to this kind of moment of uh, public peer pressure and just becoming a coward in that moment of your opportunity to stand for Christ. So we can have these, these situations of denial in the public square, but for Peter, this was a groundbreaking moment and you know he wishes he could have a do-over, just going back. In fact, it was hours before this, and it was referenced in the passage I read in Luke 22, but it's hours before this. He's sitting with Jesus at the Last Supper. Jesus says, one of you is gonna betray me, and Peter's like, I'm gonna go to prison with you. I'll die with you. And then when push comes to shove, his flesh got stronger than his own confidence in the Lord. And so now he is staring at Jesus. The rooster is crowing in the background. And he's, um, <clears throat> he's got all those emotions. The easiest emotions would be embarrassment. The, the worst emotions, feeling worse than dirt. How do you move on after that? And how do you wear the title of leader of the disciples after this kind of moment? How do you pick yourself up after that? Well, this story from John 21 teaches us the key. And that is, at least from a, theological perspective, you don't pick yourself up after that. You let Jesus pick yourself up. Because if you do, you're gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna miss it. In the same way that Jesus gave words of restoration and hope to Peter, you know what we get to do? We have God's word. Literally this story, but then all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, to read it to find words of restoration and hope and truth for us. In the same way that Jesus showed how he views Peter after the denial and after Peter's repentance where he goes away and weeps. So God's word shows us Jesus' view toward us after our shameful moments. So let me just read for you certain passages to help kind of purge out what you might think or the family dynamics you grew up in or uh, what culture would teach in those shameful or regretful moments. And let's see what God says about these moments. One of these is Psalm 103. And these, uh, these few verses say this, starting in verse 10. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a, as a father, or you know, it's mom's day, or a mother shows compassion to their children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Which that, that last verse has meant more to me than it, than it used to as a child. I've got two more, two more passages to read, and as I do, perhaps if it hasn't already come to mind, maybe there's a certain, like, uh, a regretful moment you wish you had a do-over, and not something kind of petty like a different uh, letter on a multiple-choice test, but something that has had pretty big consequences. Let's take that and then smash it against God's word to allow us to see what he says on this. So Isaiah 1.18 says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And then Romans 3, right, bringing us into the New Testament. Paul wrote this, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. So these passages remind us, and there are many more, and if you, if you would like more, uh, let me know. I, I, I can share more with you. What, one thing I, I've done is I will, in fact, that's, a, that's probably what we can add to the to the group leader study this week are just more verses and read one of these passages every day until you train your mind and your heart to know the truths of God, how he views you, what he says in these kinds of moments. Because some of you will say, Adam, okay, so I know in my mind that I'm forgiven. I know that Jesus paid for it on the cross. His blood poured out all, all over the place, but I don't feel like it. Because I don't feel like it, I gotta just kinda wander around my head low for a while until I kind of come out of it. Like you let time and your, your memory loss, I guess, just like take the sting away rather than, rather than uh, Christ's blood when he's done. So here's a couple more verses for you if this is what you'd say. Hebrews 9 says this, uh, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So from this, let me just walk us through a couple statements to help perhaps bridge the gap between your mind and your heart. Forgiveness is settled at the cross. You don't have to earn it because Jesus' Jesus's blood paid for it. And so let me ask you these questions. You know, you, you may not feel forgiven. Well, is Jesus' atonement for your sin sufficient or not? And why is it that you are so okay with him forgiving you like on the greatest scale so you can enter into, his, into, into heaven one day? Your soul can be saved, but you feel as though that moment of regret is too great for the cross. 
I mean, if I were to pick between the two, I'd say some earthly situation would be easier than your soul before your eternal judge. But why is it that we can be okay with one and not the other? Let us also remind ourselves that we cannot conjure Jesus' love. We cannot earn his forgiveness. Jesus' love is without strings. It is not contingent on your merit. It is not contingent on being good enough. It is not conditional. So let us not make conditional what Christ says is unconditional. Let me read a few more statements for you. Do not say unforgiven where Christ says Forgiven. Do not say unworthy where Christ says worthy of the kingdom. Do not say unclean on that which Christ has made clean with his own blood. Do not say shame where Christ has not kept the record of wrongs. Do not say unloved where Christ says loved without measure. As we work through this idea of being restored, being forgiven, uh, being rejuvenated, particularly in Peter's case, but I think it applies in all of us to what God has called us to. Not just ministry areas, right? We all are all ministers of the gospel for those of us in Christ, but the responsibilities God has given us. Let's just take parenting. It's Mother's Day. It's a really easy uh, illustration. As parents, you do things that you wish you could do differently. You wish you could take something back. But what I love about Christ's forgiveness and the truth of these words is it allows us to take that moment of regret, take it to the cross, experience Christ's forgiveness, and then like Peter, who was rejuvenated for what he was called to, we can be rejuvenated or restored to what God has called us to do, say, as parents, uh, and the responsibilities, and to steward that faithfully, that role. So, Maddie, if you and the team can come up here and lead us in this final song, while they're getting ready, I have a passage for you I want to read out of Ephesians 3, and I, I want to read this kind of reflectively. Uh, again, uh, there, are, there are several ways to address regret and shame and um, what I'm walking us through with God's word I think is is the uh, the first step and first first from in many ways it is it carries us through with a lot of it so let me read Ephesians 3 in light of this topic and allow it to just leads you in a sense of either worship and praise or to even solidify what it is and what it is that Christ does for you and how he does view you. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 16, says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, that's us, which is so fun to read this, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge 
you might say, my mind can't even grasp this love. It's like, yeah, it, it really is uh, unattainable to a certain extent because it is that well, wide, long, high, and deep. But yes, to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 